I mean, how do you give a wake-up call to people who have confused peace for passivity? Hello, and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Sheever. And Don, when we say historical, cultural, and, uh, you know, context and biblical literacy and discipleship, what are we talking about? You know what, George? I'd love for you to answer that this week. <laughs> okay. Um, well, discipleship is aligning our believe and our behave. Biblical literacy, a working understanding of what the text actually says, not what we um, kind of cherry pick and really want it to say. And cultural and historical context, trying to understand and honor what the first listeners may have heard um, when they were being taught it and how it actually uh, translates and applies to today and what that means. Excellent answer. You should do that every week. No, that's okay. That's what I got you for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this week, uh, we are going to be talking about Christmas. Sweet baby Jesus. Sweet baby Jesus laying in his manger, listening to his baby Einstein. Ooh, I hadn't considered that. It's from Talladega Nights. Well, I didn't know that he listened to Baby Einstein from Talladega Nights, but yes, I also know Sweet Baby Jesus is a delicious chocolate peanut butter uh, port porter. Uh, it's delicious. All right, I was not aware of that. Um, so, Don, hey, we're, we're actually cool now because we talked about craft beer. Yeah. On our, on our show. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're two white guys that talk about uh, the Bible. So at some point we had to, right? Abs- absolutely. <laughs> this, is, this is Jesus on Tap coming to you live from yesterday. Um, <laughs> so uh, Christmas is next week. And um, we are actually not going to be having an episode next week because of it. And, you know, just travel and everything. Um, but uh, you wanted to talk about Christmas and kind of some misconceptions and just some um, things that kind of stick in your crawl when it comes to it, right? Yeah. One of the major ones is the ominously glowing baby Jesuses in lit up nativity scenes. They freak me the f- out. I mean, are, are you cool with them? Um, I'm of no opinion, honestly. I love decorating my house for Christmas uh, and just actually pretty much any holiday is because I like the creativity behind it. Sure. Um, but the light up people in the nativity scene is not something I've actually ever stopped to consider or think about other than um, it always bothers me when the wise men are there because yeah, you know, there's Tiffany's so much historical inaccuracy of our nativity scenes yet they're like sacrosanct, right? Like you can't, don't touch my nativity scene. Don't mess with it. Let my Mary and Joseph and Jesus be white. Let my wise men be people of color. Um, And let my donkeys and shepherds and angels all be white and present. Oh yeah, my favorite thing is let my shepherds be clean. Yes. Well, (laughs) you know, if you're going to meet Jesus, the Messiah, you take a shower and shave, right? I mean, yeah. So, but let's get into that. So what is it about, um, where, okay. So for you, where does all this start? Well, I think part of it just starts in that, uh, 
growing up in a household that was was relatively unhealthy on a couple of different levels uh and being a pastor's kid christmas morning was always this weird time of like a moment of uh our our family actually i don't think we did every year it wasn't like a a tradition but a couple years i remember singing happy birthday to jesus it was the weirdest freaking thing even as a child i was so confused by this idea um and so we would sing happy birthday to Jesus and just being surrounded growing up in evangelical culture that, uh, that just held to some of these, these views of the nativity scene and everything. And then as I've learned the historical context, I think in some ways it's given me permission to get angry about those things, right? To be like, and maybe it's a little bit of self-righteousness in it uh, as I've just not dealt with all my baggage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fair. I mean, I know that um, a huge pet peeve of yours uh, is, you know, white Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and like just this idea that we we build up, uh, you know, Jesus to be the spitting image of who we are instead sure. of, you know, where Jesus came out of. I think I remember a couple of years ago when I think Megan Kelly lost her stuff about Jesus being white on uh, like this is five or six years ago, and like you chimed in back when you were still commenting politically on social media right. and you ripped into not, not her, but um, kind of the people that were defending her stance on it. And just like this idea that you guys have literally no idea what you're talking about with this. Well, and it's, it's sad to me, right? So like a lot of cultures make the nativity scene or Jesus in their own image in the sense that you'll find uh, paintings of the last supper that, you know, it reflects a South American uh, perspective or an African perspective. And in a lot of ways, those don't bother me. And I don't know that I can completely say why those don't bother me, but uh, Anglo culture making Jesus white bothers me. And I think it has a lot to do with just power structures. Um, and, you know, you, the Northern European, Western European male being the dominant power in the world in so many ways that uh, to take a, a picture of a Messiah that was here uh, for all intents and purposes to give hope to uh, the marginalized that now the oppressor uh, paints that that Jesus in their image and that that concerns me. So I don't think if, if Christianity was in a healthier place of acknowledging, like and I, I say Christianity, white uh, Western Americanized Christianity, if it was in a healthier place and not so tangled up with a lot of white supremacy and such, uh, and I'm not talking about alt-right racism, I'm just talking about participating and even bolstering some of the structures of white supremacy in the United States that uh, maybe I wouldn't be so concerned about. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so worried about seeing those things. Well, I mean, I think that that makes sense. Um, you know, it's really hard to, what was it last, last week or two weeks ago, I was reading something um, from the Bible museum about a copy of a missionary um, Bible to teach Christianity to slaves that left out chunks of the actual Bible that oh, yeah, the slave Bible. Yeah. The American slave Bible leaves out huge chunks of the text. Well, that was that, I mean, that version of the Bible was something that I was not aware of. I mean, I'm least surprising thing I've probably read in the last week or so, but uh, you know, when 
you are trying to spread the air quote good news to somebody that you know is closer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you try to make um, you know the Messiah look like somebody that is look like somebody that holds a seat of power, whether or not they actually do, sure. um, that's a big that's a big issue. Yeah, and I think the other piece of it for me is that. I've been in so many settings where if there's a picture of a black Jesus, like an Africanized Jesus that you immediately hear the white evangelicals like, you know, pounce on that and roll their eyes yet have no uh, real, uh, you know, self discerning point of view that says, well, I'm doing the exact same thing when Jesus is blonde haired and blue eyed. Well, I mean, I've never, now let me rephrase that. Um, not to, you know, not to dog on, um, mainstream evangelicals, but they're not taught to be self-critical or self, you know, it's, it's like, it's one of those things where I've, I have been that guy in the room. Like I remember looking at a house years ago and seeing, uh, an African, Jesus and kind of making a joke about it. And this is after I quit working at the church and was in this like weird place, but it was all out of like, for me, this, uh, self deprecation type thing, because we don't know how to handle those conversations because we're not taught to have them because our nativity scenes reflect a Jesus, Mary and Joseph that look like us, even though we look like Romans. Right. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. You know, I think that Christians uh, are not raised to question at all, right? Uh, in fact, we view ourselves as the answer, not the questioner. So, so that's part of it. But so let me get back to the scene of the nativity. One, you kind of point out the wise men. The other thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, we kind of have this perspective that, like, there are, like, Hiltons and Sheratons around Bethlehem, and that... Uh, you know, I just picture the way that we imagine it, that Joseph and Mary, you know, they pull up on their, uh, you know, 30, uh, their three ACE uh, or CE common era donkey, uh, you know, hatchback, get out, uh, unload Jesus from the, from the, uh, the baby, uh, man, I'm, I'm struggling here for language. I spent 15 years since I've had a baby. So, <laughs> but car seat, that's the word. Yeah. And so they pull out the car seat and go up in and they're like, Oh, we're sorry. We just sold the last room tonight. And so then they go to the next place and the no vacancy sign is blinking. And so then they finally just in desperation, they're like, can we just, can we just sleep in the parking lot? Right. And sleep amongst the other, uh, you know, hatchbacks. And that's kind of how we end up viewing this. And the thing is, that's just not historically accurate whatsoever. Right. There was not a, a parking lot for the, for the people staying in the hotels, mules and cattle. Um, and so this picture we have is kind of strange. So then um, teach us what is the historical accuracy for that? Well, I mean, everything's surmising. And so I would just uh, assert that my surmising is probably more historically accurate than uh, our nativity scenes. But, you know, typically a stable, which is what is referred to in the text, right? A stable would have been more of like a sheep 
uh, fold. Um, and most likely it would have been a cave in the side of a hill. And so in this sheepfold, uh, you know, there was, you know, just imagine, I mean, you would have like the soot of all these fires in there. It was dirty. There was no clean straw. That's another thing, right? All this perfectly clean straw, this nice, well-kept uh, manger and all this that, and then, but it probably would have been filthy. It would have smelled terrible. Um, some people believe that if Jesus stayed with, if, if Mary and uh, Joseph went to find family, that they might have slept in the lower level of someone's home, which is where the animals were. And in a lot of those instances, the animals were on the first floor, and then there was like a loft where other people would sleep. And the animals would actually warm, help keep the space warm. And so they would lay up in the loft and sleep. And so the warmth of the animals would come up in the loft and there was no room in that upper space. And so they had to sleep down with the animals. Um, and so then a manger or a uh, you know, stable was used for, for Jesus. So that's, that's more likely than like that it's a cave that it's, uh, or they're staying with family and they're in the lower piece of this home because there was no room uh, for them to sleep up top. Um, so that's just, that's, that's better imagery for us. And it would have been filthy and smelling terrible. And it would have been in the shadow of Herod's palace, right? Herod's palace is one of the most amazing uh, palaces there are uh, in, that were built and it would have been like three to five miles away from Bethlehem. And so this, you want to talk about just uh, Matthew drawing just the most absurd difference between the two. You have the palace of Herod, which practically could be a wonder of the world. And then you have the most lowly place that you can imagine in the filth and the stench and the feces. Um, of the animals is where Jesus is born. Both eventually will be called king of the Jews, right? In fact, I think Matthew refers to Herod as a king of the Jews, right? Even though he's a tetrarch, but it's, you know, I would argue Matthew is trying to make a point here. Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget when I first heard the, the cave background and then um, the lower part of the house and it just kind of, you know, not so much wrecked it or not wrecked my, my Christmas, but it's just like, man, how are we just being blissfully ignorant of um, kind of what the context was? And then you get the other people that, uh, that I've experienced that kind of chime in and say, well, you know, the intent is there and it's similar. So what's the, what's the big deal behind, you know, splitting hairs when it comes to this? So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think by making it all clean, nice, and neat, and God provided a space, it doesn't force us to have to deal with the actual station of Jesus, right? Like, in in our Christendom, we, we don't mind talking about, you know, that Jesus took the lowest form and that Jesus, but we still see Jesus as one of us, right? Middle-class white America, that he isn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth and he his family has to work hard for what they have. Um, but we don't actually 
end up seeing Jesus uh, being born uh, in, you know, the doorway of a crack house uh, where, you know, people that are desperate uh, for warmth and for shelter are clamoring in a city that doesn't want them there. Uh, we don't, we don't have that vision of it and we don't want that vision of it. Right. Because uh, that, that taints our, yes, I said taint, uh, that taints our perspective of, of our role in this, that we are even above the station of Jesus when Jesus was born, that he was below us. Uh, and then that forces us to deal with how we have to deal people that are below us in the station of America, right? Whether it be socioeconomically, whether it be uh, gender, whatever it might be that causes someone's station of communal welcoming and equality and equity, um, it forces us to have to deal and confront those things. And I don't think we want to. No, why would we want to? It's the highest point of the year for consumerism. I mean, right. you know, like we've got this weird relationship with Christmas, at least evangelical, I should say, at least the evangelicals that I have run with. Right. Um, because, you know, we're... Uh, we want, you know, the new iPad or whatever, which was made by somebody in the lesser station than us, you know, kids overseas in terrible conditions. And um, then at the same time, we're also just, you know, we're really excited for the candlelight liturgy service right. uh, on Christmas Eve, which, you know, my church is normally like seeker sensitive. So there's always really good music, but I really just love like getting back to the heart of it, you know, on Christmas Eve, just what it's all about. You know, this and, is a Sorry, you're, no, on, you're, you're on a roll. Go, keep going. I am. Thank you. And um, you know, that's something that I struggled with when I was in that because I, straight up, I'm. You know, we call this Evander Bros for a reason. Right. That's, that's where I I practiced that for so long, and it just becomes. You know, there's still this weird dichotomy where you have to. It feels like shut part of yourself off, the part of yourself that is most human, in order to continue to roll with what the cultural expectations are for this season. And even if you still try and not do that, there's still like this weird um, relationship or pressure that you have with it. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a, there's a strange balance for me, right? Like the, the fact that we have a holiday that we celebrate our love for other people, and we want to give them uh, exquisite gifts and be generous and uh, fawn all over people and decorate and wrap it in beautiful paper and create these gatherings of friends and family where we celebrate and eat good food and drink good wine and just celebrate the community and presence of each other. I do not in any sense want to diminish that. I struggle when we conflate the birth of the Messiah with this. And that for me is the complicated part with Christmas, right? Is that it really is two separate things. There is the beauty of family and friends and celebration, and then there's Advent. And 
I, you know, that's been one of the most difficult things for me to process over the years is how do I live in that tension where, and really I've just come to the point where I separate the gift giving, the, uh, the celebrations, the parties and stuff from uh, what I believe took place in Jerusalem when the hope of the world was born in the shadow of Herod's temple. So let's talk about Advent for a moment. This is, you know, you and I have talked over the years about it. Um, I do it really poorly at my church. Well, I mean, I think you have to practice it in order to do it poorly. We attempted it. Well, <laughs> well, but, but let's talk about that. I mean, um, you know, something about Advent uh, that even churches that don't follow a liturgical calendar um, will still participate in it just because of, you know, the, the coming of the Christ child and what that kind of represents. Uh, and you said something the other day when we were talking about what this episode was going to be about, how, you know, we're, for the season of Advent, we're in this perpetual stance of waiting on something that's already come. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me, so I often hear Christians or am asked by Christians, you know, because people know my love of ancient Judaism, and people often ask me, like, how did the Jews miss Jesus? Like, it's so obvious, right? Well, first of all, it's not so obvious. Um, but second of all, I would argue that in so many ways, Christianity has missed Jesus and the Messiah. And that's why Judaism also doesn't see it, right? Because the, the prophecies in the Bible, one of our favorite ones is, you know, from the root of Jesse. Uh, a new branch, right? A branch from the root of Jesse. And so, but in that same section, we talk about the lion laying down with the lamb, right? And I always had this image of a lion spooning a lamb. Uh, I think it'd be better if the lamb was spooning the lion personally. But this idea that the carnivorous uh, predator uh, no longer needs to be a predator, but instead can find uh find peace next to what it used to be as prey and the prey no longer feels unsafe next to the predator. And this is the picture of Shalom, right? And so Christians will say, Jesus is the branch of the stump of Jesse. And then it's like, well, then where's the peace? And it's like, well, that'll happen when Jesus comes back. And it's like, no, we are called as Christians, as members of the faithful, to start transforming this world into a place where the predators lay down with the prey. And here's the thing. We in Western Christianity are the predators. And so it's actually would be easy for Western Christianity to begin to instill this peacemaking because it's much more difficult for the prey to make the first move, right? Like, excuse me, Mr. Lion, I think you should reconsider having mutton for dinner, right? That doesn't work, right? Um, and so I think the beauty of the Gentile inclusion into this, this beautiful faith is that the Gentile inclusion was bringing in people of power, bringing in the predators and trying to teach them a way of peace and love that would allow the lamb to lay down with the lion. And for me, I just think we're still, you know, Advent is still necessary because we're still waiting for Jesus. 
Like we believe he's come, but we believe that he'll finish the job when he returns versus he's come and therefore we're in the messianic era. And now we are called to do the final work in order to usher in the return of Messiah. Um, and that's way more biblical, in my opinion, than the alternative. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that we constantly struggle with in Western, you know, Christianity, evangelicalism is, you know, how can we, how, how can we proclaim the peace or the good news of Christ um, when we're constantly remaking our churches into our own image instead of the image of God? Like, weird, yeah. I mean, Christians need Jesus more than non-Christians do. Right. <laughs> and uh, I know that that for some people can be an alarming statement, but I mean, it's the truth. Look at it. Um, you know, in a country where you have Christian institutions or, you know, colleges that put in multi-million dollar gun ranges. Along and, and I, want to know. I didn't know about that, nor do I want to. This is like two years. I mean, it, you're going to make me cry stuff. Well, but like, you know, it says a lot. It says a lot when when you do something like that. You know, the sort of Constantine. Um, I I firmly believe that we would have been better off had Constantine not saw how powerful Christians were becoming. But it's easy to say that in in hindsight, because well, you know, I would say that in a lot of ways, and let's let's just go ahead and go for it. It's Christmas. Let's be political. Um, I mean, Trump is the modern day, day Constantinian movement. Trump had no interest whatsoever in Christendom, uh, as far as we can tell for his entirety of his life, but quickly expressed a conversion, uh, had witnesses to his conversion, and uh, then quickly used the power of that inclusion of his faith now into uh, ushering in a very powerful and, in my opinion, detrimental. I don't think we'll lose any listeners because we would have lost them by now. I think they they would have stopped listening from social justice language. But um, you know, it's to me, Trump is a modern day example of the danger of Constantinian mindset of recognizing the power held by a few. Right? Let's be honest, a few. And using that to fuel their own power. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and then, you know, it's funny. I think back to... Uh, George, that might be the most political you've ever heard me. On here, yes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I just think back to when President Obama was in office and um, the Republican... Uh, not even Republican... But man, there one of our elders when I was still on staff at New Harvest. Uh, this would have been, I think, after you left. Um, was handing out <laughs> uh, Antichrist Obama tracks, mm. and it's like, dude, are you kidding me? Whether or not you agree with that, one, this isn't the place to do that. And he was handing it out in in the sanctuary. Sure, but um, you know, for the first time white evangelicals were getting scared because they felt like they felt what it was like to give up some of the power that they had a closed fist around for so long. And of course, well, so like then you see the, you know, 
which is why I firmly believe it doesn't matter who would have ran against um, Trump or who would have ran against uh, Clinton or whatever. Trump was always going to be the backlash to the evangelical powerhouse. And so like you get, (laughs) you get this group of people that felt what they thought was oppression when in reality it was the beginnings of equality. Right. And then they latch around somebody. And honestly, if you look at the language that was used around Obama for the antichrist thing, that is how they are approaching Trump. And it's just like, are you kidding me? Do you not see this? Like, why don't you just go on the political plug on you, man? Oh man. I could. Well, well, let's, let's bring it back to the birth narrative of Jesus because this is the scene of Herod. Yeah, it is. Right. Herod holds power. Herod is not even a Jew. He marries into Jewish royalty. And, but he takes on the faith um, in order to maintain the power, to grab the power. And when rumors start surfacing that a Messiah might be being born, it becomes a threat and a terrifying threat to his power. Well, yeah, it becomes a kind of witch hunt, one would say, you know? Right. And so it's interesting because, you know, you have the scene of the children being killed, which, you know, I would argue the author of Matthew particularly really wants us to hear the Moses and Exodus narrative, which we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. You know, that Moses, the threat of a savior rising up from within the ranks of the Israelites who are currently oppressed by Pharaoh, uh, causes Pharaoh to fear that the people rise up against them. And so he starts slaughtering the children. And in the same way, we see this story in the Herod, the Herodian story. Yes. Do you know that that is not the first place that tradition holds that this happens? That, that even prior to Moses? Uh, no, I don't think I knew that. So can I read uh, a, a text for you that is not part of the Bible? That's part of uh, tradition, Jewish tradition. Sure. Please. So it says, and see if this sounds at all familiar to the way that Matthew decided to write. Can Can you say where this is from, real quick? I was gonna I was gonna leave oh. a cliffhanger. All right, sorry. So this was written, uh, and what well, I'm just gonna read it. See if it sounds at all familiar to the Matthew uh, story. And it was in the night that Abram was born that all the servants of Terah and all the wise men of Nimrod and his conjurers came and ate and drank in the house of Terah, and they rejoiced with him on that night. And when all the wise men and conjurers went out from the house of Terah, they lifted up their eyes towards heaven that night to look at the stars. And they saw, and behold, one very large star came from the east and ran in the heavens, and he swallowed up the four stars from the four sides of the heavens. And all the wise men of the king and his conjurers were astonished at the sight, and the sages understood this matter, and they knew its import. And they said to each other, This only betokens the child that has been born to Tra this night, who will grow up and be fruitful and multiply and possess all the earth, he and his children forever, and he and his seed will slay great kings and inherit their lands. And the wise men and conjurers went home that night, and in the morning all these wise men and conjurers rose up early and assembled in an appointed house. 
And they spoke to each other and said to each other, Behold, the sight that we saw last night is hidden from the king. It has not been made known to him. And should this thing get known to the king in the latter days, he will say to us, Why have you concealed this matter from me? And then we shall all suffer death. Therefore, now let us go and tell the king the sight which we saw and the interpretation thereof, and we shall then remain clear. So eventually it gets to, let me see if I can find the portion here. Uh, verse 11 uh, says, And thy servants were astonished at the sight which we saw and were greatly terrified, and we made our judgment upon the sight and knew by our wisdom the proper interpretation thereof that this thing applies to the child that is born to Terah, who will grow up and multiply greatly and become powerful and kill all the kings of the earth and inherit all of the lands, and he and his seed forever. Uh, and then basically this goes in and I can't find it right now. And I don't want to bore everyone by reading through the entire text because, but it is interesting. Uh, the king decides, Nimrod decides to call Terah to bring Abram so he can kill Abram. So you have wise men, you have a king, you have the birth of Abram. You have them looking up at the stars. You have uh, a a pronunciation that this person is going to rise up and be more powerful than the current king. And then you have the desire to kill that child. All of this is in the book of Jasher, J-A-S-H-E-R. And now there's some tra traditions around Jasher, like pseudo Jasher and other things. And those who are really interested in ancient texts will find some of that fascinating. If you examine, you search that out uh, from the Apocrypha. But much of Jewish tradition, even if they don't accept all of the book of Jasher, they do accept this as part of their story. So like if you went to like Chabad.org, uh, you could find some of this birth narrative of Abram as part of their tradition, even if they don't hold all of Jasher as part of the truth. Wow. Is that amazing? That is. And I, I would argue Matthew knows this tradition of Abram. Oh, yeah. I mean, Matthew is Jewish, um, and everybody would have gone to that, every male would have gone to that school until a certain age. So what do you think, like, when we think about this, this birth narrative, and we get, like, our, we look at the birth narrative, and we find the most important thing to be the picture of the nativity scene, when in reality, Matthew is screaming. This is a new Abraham. A new Abraham, a new Moses. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the guy that will fulfill the blessed, to be a blessing for all nations. Right. Even in the Matthew narrative, we had the genealogy of Jesus in which David is the focus of that. And then yeah. Jesus, if we, you know, I think it was in our uh, one podcast we did towards the beginning of this when we talked about like different uh you know, pictures in the text or images in the text. And we talked about the uh, Jesus going out into the wilderness and how that was absolutely like keying in that his first act as a teacher was mimicking the first act of David. So in this very short period of time, Matthew wants us to hear Abraham. Matthew wants us to hear Moses and Matthew wants us to hear David. Um, and that's the powerful, powerful imagery that's going on in this nativity scene. And we've reduced it to making a, you know, a little barn with some clean hay and some wise men and some sheep and goats. 
And instead, what Matthew is trying to declare is, this is the, the father of our faith, Abraham, began life the same way as Jesus did. Moses, who declared there would be a prophet greater than him, experienced the same uh, threat from the ruler of his day. And David, who uh, is the king of our people, uh, Jesus began his ministry in the same way as David. These are, like, to me, part of what grieves me around Advent and Christmas is that I've never heard those stories taught during this time. No, I haven't either. And that's what's being said. Matthew's concern is not whether or not uh, people have a nativity scene on their fire man- place mantle, but whether or not we see that the Messiah is the culmination, or as I've said before on this show, uh, the Voltron of Torah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, I think that we can get into why we've not heard that. and it, But like part of the problem, and this is why I love why we talk about biblical literacy and why it's so important is like, you can hold something in tension that is not considered to be canon, but still important to the story. Right. But that's not something that's taught mainstream, unfortunately. And because until that's changed, you will never hear that taught for this, which is a real shame. But to me, I I always find it interesting. I love, I love sharing that with people this time of year because people just have not ever heard that tradition. Like, and people don't ask, what the heck is going, why wise men? Like of all things, why wise men? And I've heard some really weird theories. But the truth is there's wise men because at Abram's birth, there were wise men that looked to the stars for guidance and understanding who and what was being born into the world. And there was a king who was Nimrod, who was evil in the eyes of Judaism. Just do some searches on Jewish perspective of Nimrod. Seriously. The epitome of evil. And so is Herod. Like, and so it's also a declaration about Herod. Like, this is powerful. Like, Matthew's also making some pretty steep claims. Like, he's comparing Herod to the Pharaoh that enslaved Israel and tried to kill all the firstborn or all the, the baby males. Mm-hmm. And he's comparing Herod to Nimrod. Like this is no joke. Matthew is throwing it down right now. He's like balling it out right now with his, with his writings in just a handful of sentences. Yeah. It's, um, man, I can't wait to, to dive into more on the, uh, on the Joshua stuff and the birth of Abram. So for me, I think, where I really feel compelled, George, is that Christmas has become this time of, and, and man, this, this becomes so complicated, right? Of peace and joy. And, but according to Matthew, this is the historical moment that the gauntlet was thrown down against oppression. Right. And there's a part of me that knowing that I find the, the, the dichotomy of what I experienced during Christmas and what I've come to see in the text to be so drastic that it's complicated for me. Right. Because this is the time of year 
that maybe we as Christians step up and say, we no longer accept that we live outside of the Messianic era. And because we live in the Messianic era, and this is a reminder to us, we will stand up against the oppressor. We will no longer be in the shadow of Herod's uh, castle. We will no longer be in the slave enslavement of Pharaoh. And we will no longer stand by and watch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you and know, said we're mad about Starbucks cups. Thankfully I haven't heard anything this year. I'm sure there is somewhere, but thankfully I've not heard it. I mean, honestly, who cares? Um, no, I, I, but I mean like how do, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, how do you pro- give a wake up call to people who have confused peace for passivity? Mm. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I think, I think as, um, people who have gone through the deconstruction process or like just question their faith. I, I don't care whatever language you want to use for it. And they're starting to rebuild and kind of refocus and refigure out what this actually means. You know, there's a, not a sense of complacency, but just powerlessness that comes with that. Um, because, you know, you have to do a lot of work for yourself. And this is one time of the year where it's like, you know, I can just sit back and relax and, you know, because baby Jesus doesn't change, even though in a couple of months we'll celebrate the death and resurrection. But how do you wake people up to that? Yeah, and especially wake people up to that without people then labeling you a Grinch or, you know, uh, a party pooper this time of year. Um, and that's why I think, uh, to be honest, I'd rather people throw the gauntlet down uh, 364 days a year and on the 365th day of the birth of Jesus, celebration of the birth of Jesus, we all talk about peace. Cool. That's, I'm good with that. Um, but I, I get frustrated because this is the time of year that those in affluence show pity on those in destitution. And I would much rather us learn empathy than pity. Yeah, man, I'm just thinking about all the times um, that I've heard people say, you know, just be thankful for what you've gotten this year and what you have and that, you know, you're not out on the streets and everything else. It's like, you know, you're just kind of being an asshole. Don't shame me. Well, like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's it's one of those things where it, because people haven't been taught how to be compassionate and what, and I'm talking about, you know, these are conversations I've overheard um, from when I used to work children's ministry, you know, parents to other parents and everything else. And it's just like, okay, well, uh, I know what you're trying to do, but you're not doing a very good job at it. And so how do, how do, how do I try and uh, help you along this path? Yeah. I think a lot of that just comes down to trust and the ever elusive term community and and you can't force people into community people have to find it stay in it and become it yeah that's that's really complicated especially for a microwave society that is moving so fast that we want everything instantly and if it doesn't happen instantly we move on to the next thing yeah so so george before we finish because we're, we're probably pretty close to time yeah um you know, here's what I 
a discipleship moment, if maybe we could. Perfect. Yes, um, perfect. You know, when Jesus is born in this scene, Israel is under oppression from Rome. The quote-unquote king of the Jews is not even Jewish. And, you know, the sayings or the traditions around Herod was that it was safer to be a pig in the house of Herod than it was to be a, so a child or a son. Um, so he was this very evil, very violent person. And so rumors of Jesus, rumors of Moses, rumors of Abraham, I would even say, are kind of like pricks of light in, in darkness, right? Like, and as someone who suffers from depression, especially this time of year, hey, it's um, those pricks of light. Yeah. Take it back from me as someone who suffers from. Okay. As someone who suffers from depression this time of year, uh, it's often, it's rarely ever a spotlight of light at the end of the tunnel that helps pull me through. It's usually just the smallest prick of light in the black canopy of darkness, right? That gives me some level of hope. And really, this is the birth of Jesus. Jesus in this place of oppression, this place of inequality, this place of suffering that Israel was in. And they were trying to figure out how do they put one more foot in front of the other. This, the rumors, the idea that possibly the Messiah had been born is that prick of light in the canopy of darkness that existed at that time. And to me, that's really a powerful picture because Israel didn't immediately get out of the from under the thumb of Rome. Uh, that would be Messiah is murdered. Um, then many of people that continue to follow him and believe in him were put to death and were tortured. And so it, it remained this small piece of hope in, in the blackness of the sky uh, maybe even a star is a good picture, right? That they could walk towards and keep moving towards that. Um, that is what gives us hope. That's the hope this time of year is that even with the world in so many ways falling down around us and failing to meet the beautiful sunlit sky that we hope for, that our stories, the stories of Messiah, the stories of Jesus is that pinprick of, of light in the darkness. And I think in some ways we've tried to oversell it and make it too big. Um, and it just doesn't seem real. Whereas for me, when I'm in the throes of depression, I'm more likely to hold on to just that one tiny speck of light then if all of a sudden I saw a bright light come, I'd be like, well, it's, just, it's a train. It's going to run over me. <laughs> right. Um, and so, so I guess, you know, it was funny because we talked about this on Sunday a little bit at our church and someone in the church said, so what you're asking us, Don, is that this Christmas we be pricks of light. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think there's something to that. If, if this holiday season, that we each strove deeply, passionately, intentionally, and uh, deliberately to being a prick of light in the darkness 
and the dark canopy that what a, a constellation would form you know this this the area would be lit up by those of us doing that and i think it's so important to me that's what christmas is christmas is that there was a pin of light in jesus and then jesus says and then you now are the light and so for me that's the beauty and that's that's what gives me hope at christmas the hope in christmas isn't that everything's okay the hope of christmas the hope of the birth of messiah is that the canopy can be penetrated the darkness that falls over the world can be uh, penetrate and light can shine through and that is what you and i are encouraged to be and do this time of year so george may you be a prick ah thank you may you also be one been there. i uh i think that that that's a really great way to put it um yeah. Uh, so, um, and hey, everybody, uh, because we got political in this, try not to stress out at your family holiday this year. Just keep your mouth shut and just know that we did this for you. And remember, if your relatives are being pricks, that's what they should be at Christmas. Yes. Wait, um, what we wanna, is that how we want to end this? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we do. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. Uh, so if you have any questions, uh, want to continue the conversation offline, um, shoot us an email at evangelbros at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at evangelbros. And uh, drop by wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, give us a rate and review. Five star helps us reach a larger audience. Um, and yeah, that being said, you know, Merry Christmas, everybody. Or as I like to say, Happy Holidays. Well, you're a heathen. I refuse to say anything other than have a wonderful and beautiful New Year's. All right. I've been your co-host, George. I've been your other co-host, Don. See ya. Bye.